0: Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories Magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories Podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. And the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. That's absolutely all you need to know about me. The podcast, though, is a celebration, really, of what it takes to get a film to the screen. So I'm here, as the title suggests, to talk of the stories of them. I talk about production stories, development stories, marketing stories and the struggles, really, of getting a movie from A to B. The films I tend to choose for the podcast have a mainstream leaning, really. They tend to be films I'm invested in or interested in to some degree. I don't do snark. There are plenty of other places you can get that if you like it. Um, And what I tend to do in each episode is discuss two films, go through the stories of them, and then go away and leave you in peace. So that's what I'm going to do. Let me start then with a clip of the first of the two films I'm going to talk about in this particular episode. And it's a dash of 007. What do you say about it? Three months ago, you lost the drive containing the identity of every agent embedded in terrorist organizations across the globe. 007 reporting for duty. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. I only have one question. Why not stay dead? There's no shame in saying you've lost a step. that then is a snippet of the trailer of 2012's Skyfall, directed by Sam Mendes, writing credits for this one were uh, written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade and John Logan, of course based on characters created by Ian Fleming the cast, Daniel Craig as James Bond, Judy Dench as M, Javier Bardem as Silver. you've got Ray Fiennes in there, Naomi Harris, Berenice Marlowe, Albert Finney, Ben Whishaw, Rory Kinnear, Ola Rapace Helen McCrory, a, a huge ensemble really, but a a film that's proven to be quite pivotal uh, in the way that James Bond films have been approached since. I've talked about this on an earlier Film Stories podcast episode, but I've never gone fully into Skyfall as a movie. And I really wanted to correct that because this was as much a hostage of circumstance and a reaction at the same time that 2008's quantum of solace that i've covered before on film stories was a film that was notably rushed through following the success of 2006's casino royale so quantum of solace was craig's second bond movie it was caught up in the writer's strike that was going on at the time which meant that the script was never really fully refined and the film was rushed to the screen and whilst it was a commercial success it's generally the least light to the daniel Craig movies and it's one of i'd suggest the least liked james bond films as well so there was a plan because it only followed uh, casino royale by what two two and a half years so there was a plan with james bond 23 as skyfall was going to become just to take a little bit more time with it to look perhaps at a three-year gap now very early in the process of development, Sam Mendes was quickly identified as a potential director for the film. And Mendes had won an Oscar for his first directorial outing, which was, of course, American Beauty. He'd since done Jarhead, since done Road to Perdition and also an extensive and hugely acclaimed range of theatre work, which he continues to this day. As I record this, 1917, his latest film is just heading into cinemas as well so in the early stages of development that it it was known in the lead-up to quantum of solace's release that another james bond film was going into product going into development of course and at that point before the reaction to quantum of solace had been monitored there was initial talk about turning james bond 23 into a trilogy closer that because quantum of solace followed directly on from casino royale the next film could follow on from quantum of solace but the mixed critical response didn't really help there and ultimately eon productions uh decided to head off in a different direction although circumstances again would put a few spanners in the works i'm coming to those now one of the early rumors of which way they would go was they'd adapt uh one of the more recent james bond novels from jeffrey Deaver, and carte blanche was identified as the one that was well the rumor bill said they were going to zero in on Unusually, Eon Productions actually officially denied this in August of 2011. But the story's already jumped forward a couple of years, so I'm just going to come back a little bit. Quantum of Solace then, released at the end of 2008. The first person who was hired to write, uh, put together a screenplay for James Bond 23 was Peter Morgan. You'll know him more recently now from The Crown, but he'd done stuff like The Queen. Uh, Frost Nixon uh, was was one of the... A hugely acclaimed... Uh, and a hugely talented screenwriter that said he wasn't ultimately credited on the final screenplay for the film i think bond films go through a bit of a thing where oftentimes a, a different writer is brought in and then it's brought back to neil purvis and robert wade who have written uh pretty much well, they're credited on every bond film since GoldenEye. and in the case of james bond 23 when sam mendes came onto the film again relatively early in early on he brought in john logan and ultimately Ultimately, it was Purvis, Wade and Logan who fashioned the credited script. Uh, Jez Butterworth was brought in to do some uncredited work on there as well. And there's, I mean, there's some dispute about what, how much was left of Peter Morgan's work uh, in the final screenplay. Morgan suggested that, that the base of it was in there. Mendes did, did take a polite issue with that. But in the midst of developing the script, um, there was a parallel problem of MGM. And at this stage, MGM was out of money, it's always been one of the key financial stakeholders uh, in recent times in the James Bond films, and the the problem was it was very well known around around Hollywood that the studio was was edging towards the cliff that this was something that held up The Hobbit. Movies, for instance, and, and in part led to Guillermo del Toro moving away from directing the Hobbit films and Peter Jackson coming in because of the delays involved. But also, MGM was on the verge of going bankrupt, and if it did, that left Bond in an at in- the Bond franchise in an interesting um, and and quite difficult place. The Eon Productions uh, the, the masterminds of the Bond series would have been able to set up a fresh deal somewhere else that much is true it would have been able to work with a partner that was more financially secure however um, it, it was in its interest to wait to see how it played out that if it, if it tried to do some kind of deal while MGM was still in the midst of its struggles then the ownership of Bond could have become very muddy indeed and they needed it to be as clean as possible really now while all this was going on Mendes was still concerned. Consulting on the film and he hadn't be he hadn't officially signed on as director daniel craig of course was contracted to return uh, there was some talk at one point at, about this being his his bond swan song but then there's regularly talk about we, we in fact since Skyfall, there there's been talk on every james bond film that it's going to be daniel craig's swan song rachel vice was linked in the early stages incidentally with a role in the film that didn't that that ultimately didn't come to pass the difference between the mgm financial problems and how they impacted a bond production though was how much this was played out in public and how much the notoriously private eon productions was willing to go on the record about stuff so i've talked just before about they officially denied that carte blanche was going to be the base of a bond film that's rare in itself but 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 with with early pre-production work underway on Bond 23 and a, a, a possibility of it being out at the end of 2011... Barbara Broccoli and Michael J. G. Wilson, the producers of the Bond films of E.ON, took the very, very unusual step of putting out a public statement to do with the financial uncertainty behind the film. So it, the, the original plan was potentially to shoot the film in 2010, but early in 2010, a statement was issued that said, quote... Due to the continuing uncertainty surrounding the future of MGM and the failure to close a sale of the studio, we have suspended development on Bond 23 indefinitely. We do not know when development will resume and do not have a date for the release of Bond 23. And that was that. And even before it got to that point, Wilson had been... He'd given an interview to Total Film where he talked about the timeline being up in the air. But there it was, an official statement coming out that... James Bond was being delayed because of financial matters outside of their control, and and this this is a big thing for Eon. The Eon. So rarely comments on rumours, so rarely makes official proclamations until it's ready to do so. And yet here it was putting the, this news very much out there. Now, Daniel Craig re, uh, remained loyal to the producers during the delay. He could potentially have tried to wheedle his way out of playing Bond, but he, he he clearly didn't want to. But instead, it opened up his schedule that he could go off and make the girl with the dragon tattoo for David Fincher and Cowboys and Aliens for John Favreau in the window that subsequently opened up for him now Craig did also say at the time that he was worried by the delays in the production because he was concerned that at this stage he was in his early 40s and he knew that playing James Bond brought with it extreme physical demands he had to to prepare to do a Bond film his, his general way of preparing was about six months of solid work before shooting begins as well as a couple of hours working out every day while shooting the movie he knew he had to be in shape for the film. So this was playing some degree of havoc And there were reports around the time when this announcement came out. Could this be the end of James Bond? But that that was the cheap clickbait, really, that it sounded. Few believed that the Bond series was actually going to end over there. In fact, it was one of the few tangible assets that MGM had that helped bolster it towards some kind of sale. But there was, in the background of this, a real pressure to have a film in cinemas at least in 2012. Because 2012 marked the 50th anniversary of the official James Bond movie series. and it was a too good an opportunity not to have a film out to tie into that so at the moment we're we're in the early part of 2010 with things still in some degree of limbo. But by the end of the year, things had begun properly to sort themselves out. MGM itself finally filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy in November of 2010, and it came out of that bankruptcy a month later. And at that point, uh, the team who'd been working at Spyglass Entertainment, Gary Barber and Roger Burnbaum, became co-chairman and co. CEOs of the holding company that then uh, basically oversaw and owned the MGM studio and the MGM film catalogue. And now MGM is still a going concern, although it's a subsidiary company of MGM Holdings Inc., which was one of the offshoots of the 2010 saving of the studio. But it was clear by going into bankruptcy protection, then coming out, that there was a plan in place to actually save and give the studio a future. So by September 2010, so that's two months months before MGM entered into this arrangement there were signs that things were moving forward. Around this time, Lionsgate was looking for directors for The Hunger Games. I've covered The Hunger Games in a previous Film Stories episode, if you want to look that up. God bless you. Um, And Sam Mendes was one of the potential directors named for that. Now, Gary Ross would ultimately direct The Hunger Games because Mendes came out of the running for the film. And there's no guarantee he would have got it, but he was certainly one of the names in the mix for The Hunger Games. But he came out of the running when it looked like James Bond was finally going to... be free to press ahead and so the plan was suddenly looking that James Bond 23 would be shooting in the summer of 2011 at last by January 2011 the new owners were fully in place of MGM the cash was in place for a new James Bond film and things were moving forward tabloid rumours came in again Rachel Weisz was again linked with the movie but again didn't appear in it there was a, a rumour that was going around at the time that the film was going to be called Red Sky at Night by the start of 2011 it was clear that Sam Mendes was signing on the dotted line and he was now certain to direct this movie this was his next project it was Judy Dench Dan Judy Dench in March of 2011 she confirmed that the film would be now be shooting that year in a press interview. The official announcement was still a couple of months off because before that in April 2011 a missing part of the financial jigsaw came into play came into place when Sony Pictures uh, re-signed its deal to distribute the next James Bond film it had distributed Casino Royale, it distributed Quantum of Solace and held the cinema release rights to those films notably 20th Century Fox has the home entertainment rights so technically they're under Disney's uh, purview at the moment. Sony though for for James Bond 23 would also co-finance the film as part of the deal and the Deal also covered James Bond 24. So the security of the next two James Bond films was done in one deal there. Paramount had been in talks uh, to take on Skyfall, but it walked away over the level of distribution fee that it'd be able to take from it. One of the things that was notable about Spectre, the subsequent James Bond film that came out in 2015. Again, I've done a film stories episode on this, was that Sony stumped up a, a lot of the budget, but because it only got theatrical revenues, it barely broke even on a movie. Movie that grossed what Back just shy of 900 million dollars worldwide with skyfall it came out of it a bit better but then skyfall was a cheaper film to make and it was one that also grossed more cash coming to that shortly so eventually finally our uh, things were things were pressing ahead so on june the 1st 2011 a release date was finally announced for james bond 23 no title at this stage but the release date was going to be friday the 26th of october 2012 it would be out in time for the 50th anniversary of james bond on the big screen ultimately the title and god this is such a lovely 2011 story this the title of the film was revealed in october 2011 by people searching for what domain names were being registered you can't really do that so much anymore now uh studios are far more savvy with the game but back in 2011 searching for new domain name registrations was a uh, was a surefire way to get a lead on what a film's title was going to be so lots of domain names based around the name skyfall were registered and so up went the ups well, went the website stories. I think I probably wrote one myself back then. And the title was formally announced in November 2011. But it wasn't just the reveal of the title. This was a statement of intent press conference where the stars of the film came out. The cast was confirmed at the press conference and it was it was covered globally. It was a huge global announcement that was streamed uh, around the world. This is where we learned that Javier Bardem was going to come into play the villain of the film. There had been uh, real speculation that Kevin Spacey was in the running for that role, actually, because Spacey had worked with Sam Mendes on American Beauty and picked up a best actor gong for it um, it feels like a bullet very much dodged that he didn't get the part Mendez in the end heavily pushed for Javier Bardem to take on the role seeing the characters having a little bit of a Julian Assange tinge to him as well now in the midst of it all there was real speculation that Sean Connery would be invited back for a cameo in the movie to take on the role of Kincaid who appears towards the end of the film no spoilers that's all you're getting Um, Kincaid was ultimately played by Al but Connery was legitimately considered this wasn't just again a bit of uh, internet clickbait there were conversations about bringing Connery in for a cameo to mark the 50th uh, the 50th anniversary of Bond on the big screen but the feeling rightly I'd I'd suggest was that the presence of Connery in the film in a non-James Bond role as well would really overshadow it and would take the emphasis away from the last act of the movie and thus uh, Albert Finney signed on to take the role now it was this was a tricky shoot this whole production was a tricky one because even though the financial matters had been resolved skyfall was going to be a slightly more contained james bond production that the fi- the finances behind it weren't as rich as as originally had been intended and the production to a degree had to be curtailed which is why skyfall is primarily set in the uk that this wasn't going to be a globe trotting bond in quite the same way as before now of course it did shoot overseas um i'll come to that in a second but there are lots of moments in the film that look like they're overseas that were actually shot in the uk so there are moments in the film that look like they're shot in shanghai um and there's a swimming pool for instance uh, in the shanghai sequences and that's actually a pool in a virgin active gym uh, in 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 the uk in london ascot Racecourse doubled up at one point for shanghai airport even the remote island that is visited in the film there's a lot of cg and set work that's going on in there on top of some of the location filming that was also done there were Overseas sequences, certainly, not least the incredible opening sequence to the movie. Now, this took place, the filming started on Skyfall, I should know on the 7th of November 2011, and initially the filming was set all around the UK. But in March of 2012, the production upsticks to Turkey for two months of solid, fi- two, three months of solid filming there, which is primarily for that opening train sequence in the movie, which was a hugely, hugely intense and difficult sequence to shoot and the longest sequence in terms of time taken to get in to, to get in the can for the entire film that said the third act was uh, was no <laughs> was no easy ride either and going as spoiler light as possible the 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 finale of skyfall is set in and around an estate and that actually estate was built as a full scale model In the end to give Mendes and his team the flexibility that they needed, even though it's in the film cited in Scotland. Actually, that model was built uh, on Hankley Common in Surrey. Apparently I didn't know that I found that out while I was researching this, Um, but they, they did construct it specifically for the movie. Filming also moved to China and Japan, and it wrapped up in May 2012. The actual uh, production came in five days ahead of schedule. Although there's some post-production CG work that needed to be done on this... Not just on the aforementioned island sequence, but also adding post-production explosions and stuff where traditionally... I mean, you look at Spectre, they have, I think, the biggest explosion, on, on practical on-screen on explosion in film. In this particular case, one of the, 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 ma- one of the major explosions in the movie is, is added in post-production. I think it's fairly obvious it is as well, although not really to the detriment of the movie. Now, Skyfall was in the can then for May 2012, but what a race against time was ahead of the production... The editor, Stuart Baird, assisted by Kate Baird, had really about four, four and a half months to put together the final cut of the movie, fully mixed and ready to go. Now, contrasting with Spectre again, I do think it's worth the contrast, the... the, the production on spectre was far was even more up against the clock they had three months to put their final edit of that together but still four four and a half months for a huge action action thriller such as skyfall was not really much time at all and it was a real race against race against the clock to get this one locked down i i've used this anecdote before but i think it's i think it's worth noting that when mad max fury road headed to the editing room it took two three months just to sort through all the footage to catalog it to work out what they had in the case of skyfall they had four four and a half months to deliver the finished version of the film what once production had production had finished on the movie now of course they edited it on the go as well and the fact that the production was based in the uk and it had its pinewood home meant that that for the most part they were never that far away from the editing room and of course remote technology was used uh, although not to the extent it was expected just so Mendes could keep an eye on how on how things were going and make sure that the edit was coming along properly but still i would say i contend that's a ridiculously short amount of time um and i I also think it's one of those things you you can kind of tell when a film's running time goes on a little bit longer than you would necessarily expect i mean skyfall is what the second or third longest bond film that there wasn't really the time in the edit suite just to find five minutes to take out i'm not suggesting that skyfall is particularly bloated or anything like that um it's just that you. you in days of old, films would have a year in the edit room. And I, I, I think there's a, a correlation between the fact that editing time has contracted and film running times has increased. Anyway, the story of Skyfall was about to have a really, really, really happy ending for all concerned. The film ultimately premiered on October the 23rd at Leicester Square in the UK. This is 2012. Its formal UK release would be three days later later, it would follow in America, a week or two behind that, and it was quickly on its way to becoming the biggest Bond ever, in terms of commercials, in terms of just sheer box office, that this is the first Bond film, and the only Bond film, at the time of talking, to cross a billion dollars at the global box office, the reviews were ecstatic, I always remember the late, great Barry Norman saying Skyfall was about his favourite Bond film, and Quantum of Solace was his least favourite, and just pointing out that one seemed to follow the other, and it did feel that there was a degree of a reaction to Quantum of Solace in the making of Skyfall Mendes was pretty open about the fact that films like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight had influenced it to some degree but still this also had a knock on effect for other films that were competing around the same time I'm a huge fan of DreamWorks' Rise of the Guardians but that was a film that was caught in the midst of an awful lot of big, non, not necessarily what you consider a family movie competition that also ate up some of its audience and really nobody saw nobody saw i would suggest the size of skyfall success coming it was it had been a cheaper film to make than quantum of solace whose budget was reported what around 230 million whereas i mean skyfall was hardly cheap it still cost about 190 200 million dollars to make but it would gross 1.1 billion dollars worldwide and i mean if you just look at its opening weekend at the us and what it what it was up against it, it trounced the likes of wreck it ralph Flight Argo taken two, but also uh, I mean Twilight, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part Two followed the week after, but still Bond managed to hold on to what about fifty percent of its takings. And films that were arriving in the aftermath, Rise of the Guardians, I mentioned, Life of Pi, The Red Dawn remake, etc. That there was a feeling that they were impacted by just what a big success Skyfall was. Now the ramifications continued that following up Skyfall and uh, 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 also the fact that they had more money in the bank led to Spectre and led to Spectre being a far more expansive film geographically than Skyfall was, But I would imagine that uh, as we head towards no time to die, if the makers of the the 25th James Bond film have been looking towards anything as a touch point, it would be more the Casino Royale and Skyfall uh, entries in Craig's tenure as Bond, both of which I think really stand up tremendously well. We'll find out how the next film fares in April of 2020. But for now, Skyfall remains the box office high mark and one of the critical high marks of the entire James Bond franchise. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> halfway point of the latest film stories then so let me just do a couple of plugs if you want to support this podcast and our clickbait free movie website you can find me at patreon.com/simonbrew please if you can subscribe and leave nice reviews for this podcast at your podcast repository of choice also film stories uh, magazine is is back for the new year issue 13 is just going into just heading off to print pretty much as this podcast is being uh, put together and released you can order your copies at www.filmstories.co.uk that's enough plugs though I'm going to get on with the second of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode and I'm going back a few more years this time have a clip and then I'll pick up the story the other side of this he's got burns covering over 40% of his body the hands and face are the most severe 10 years ago pain from the burns would have been intolerable this man would have spent the rest of his life screaming now, we use the Rank of Erich technique. Quite simply, we sever the nerves within the spinothalamic tract. There. Which, as you know, transmits neural impulses of pain and vibratory sense to the brain. No longer receiving impulses of pain. You stick him with a pin. And he can't even feel it. That's nice and cheery, isn't it? That's a clip from 1990s Dark Man, directed by Sam Raimi. That one, of course. The writing credits for it Chuck Farah, Sam Raimi, Ivan Raimi, Daniel Goldin, Joshua Goldin. The film headlined by Liam Neeson, who was just then being pricked. Francis McDormand, Colin Friel's in there, Larry Drake. There's a cameo from Bruce Campbell. There's also Ted Raimi in the midst of it all as well. Now, this one goes back to, well, really the 80s as you might expect that by this stage Sam Raimi was established really as a man of horror um, off the back of his two Evil Dead movies. He'd also done Crime Wave by this point as well as a lot of short films as well but it was he was far from regarded as the huge blockbuster director we perhaps know him as today off the back of his Spider-Man trilogy but he was looking to build towards doing something slightly different and he'd been toying for a little while with a comic book movie in the 80s at time when let's be let's be blunt about it comic book movies weren't really a thing that warner brothers had had success with superman and superman 2 but superman 3 and superman 4 hadn't quite gone to plan at the point Raimi was developing his ideas tim burton's 1989 batman movie was still ahead of us although it would be released before darkman and so if anything superman remained the touch point of note for movie executives Raimi was intrigued by two properties that he tried to get the rights to make he tried to to get Batman and failed but he also tried to get The Shadow which is a film I'll come to in a future film stories podcast because he he really wanted to do something based on that and ultimately the Darkman film that he would make would have The Shadow as some degree of template to it he failed to get the rights to The Shadow that would go on to become a film in the mid-90s with Alec Baldwin in the lead role. So in the end, he decided to write a short story of his own that would pay homage to the Universal-era 1930s horror films that he loved, but also would have a comic book superhero tinge to it as he wrote and developed the story more and more. He would turn his short story into a 40-page treatment in the end, and he centred the story on the character of Peyton Westlake, uh, a skin researcher who, uh, assumed dead after uh, an attack on his lab, the experimental skin that he's been working on that lasts for ninety nine minutes before it starts to fall apart, and but as a consequence, he can use this skin technique to uh, take the identity of his attackers and can go off and seek revenge. I mean, it was quite a hard edged film uh, as it happened in the end. But Raimi had existed in the independent sector and he gave interviews around the time of Darkman's release that was were fairly open about the fact that he'd never done a film that had made any money. But conversely, uh, Evil Dead had been championed by Stephen King and his name was bubbling up uh, in Hollywood and certainly had the notice of the studios he certainly had the notice of Universal because he took the idea for his story to that studio Universal was suitably interested as well and it entered into what's known as a negative pickup deal with Raimi and this is defined as a contract uh, entered into by an independent producer and a movie studio with the studio Agreeing to pick up the movie from the producer at a certain date and for a fixed sum. Under the terms of a negative pickup deal, there, there is flexibility on whether the studio uh, picks up the full cost of the film or not, and that in turn affects the divvying up of the profits. Uh, for the purposes of this, I, I do think Universal ultimately funded uh, Dark Man. So, it agreed to come aboard the film. Producer Robert, Ta- Robert Tapper was on board at this stage as well. And it, it put it, it reckoned it was gonna cost eight to twelve million dollars and Raimi had the green light to press ahead with his movie. But there was still the small matter of a screenplay that needed to be put together. So we're in the mid to second half of the 80s at this stage. And Raimi hired Chuck Farah to pen the first full draft of the screenplay. As it turned out, there would be lots of drafts of the screenplay. I've done a lot of reading around on this. And it's somewhere between 10 and 12 uh, drafts before they were happy with the, uh, to have a shooting script together. So Farah wrote the first full draft of the script... Uh, Sam and Ivan Raimi then pe- came in to pen the next they did a couple more Daniel and Joshua Goldin they came in to do another uh, another pass on the screenplay then Ivan and Sam Raimi came back and they did several more passes of the screenplay as well Ramey was looking at touch points such as The Shadow and Phantom of the Opera I think that's fairly clear if you've seen the finished film um, he, uh, the more he developed it the more he, got, he headed towards the idea of a man without superpowers fighting crime he also recruited Joel and Ethan Cohen uh, who who he knew to help a little with the script near the end those, those aren't bad people to have on your roller deck are they Stylistically, Raimi told Fangoria magazine around the time of the film's UK release that what he was looking to do with the film was something a bit more restrained than he'd done with the Evil Dead movies. That he wanted he didn't want to be so showy with the camera work. He wanted to let the audience more into the heads of the characters that he was putting on screen. He didn't want to distract them. And actually, if anything, even though people posited the movie as a horror film uh, on its release, Raimi was seeing this as more as a tragedy, as anything else. Perhaps even more than a superhero film. He did, though, want to take advantage of the kind of budget he'd never had the opportunity to work with before. That that eight to twelve million dollars, and it would go up to sixteen by the end of the production. That eight to twelve million dollar budget that Universal had put together. I mean, it, it was it was relatively economical, but it wasn't cheap. But in terms of what Ramy had been spending on his evil dead films it was it was a lot 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 more and as a consequence there were things he could do that he hadn't been able to do before so he managed to get in professional stunt team helicopters were hired he was able to build a proper laboratory set for for the character westlake in the movie with the script, therefore, in place, pre-production uh, underway and the set being built, there was still the challenge of casting this particular film, uh, not least the role of Peyton Wesley, because this was going to be a pretty intense commitment for an actor. The extensive makeup work required to realise the character of Darkman, particularly as the film develops, uh, was not inconsiderable, and Raimi was looking for someone with, quote, a monster with the soul of a man, uh, but also someone who could act under layers and layers and layers of Makeup, and that's no you know, a fairly significant challenge. Now, inevitably, Sam Raimi's top choice, or certainly one of his top choices at the time, was Bruce Campbell, who obviously he'd worked with on the Evil Dead film, and he's appeared in every Raimi film since, and the two are firm friends, long-time collaborators. But Universal was footing the bill. Uh, on this particular one and Universal didn't want Bruce Campbell headlining the Darkman movie vetoed his casting and Raimi had to look elsewhere now Raimi of course would find ways to get Campbell into the movie he has one or two small parts to play within it but then it was a case of well who's going to take on this pivotal lead role and at one stage the light was shining in the direction of the late great Bill Paxton that he was one of the first in line for consideration and he landed an audition to take the role Now Paxton was friendly with Liam Neeson around this time and he told Liam Neeson that he'd had the call for an audition and as it turned out Neeson was also landing an audition for the role too and it would of course be Neeson who ultimately prevailed and Neeson and Paxton fell out for a short while over that particular piece of casting. Neeson gave some interviews around the time of the film's release where he he was asked about the the makeup and just the sheer challenge of it and and he he wasn't put off by it at this stage he hadn't had a big lead acting uh, action movie role I don't think he's going to have another one again Um, he took this particular part very seriously that he he was aware he was dealing with a character with uh, facial disfigurement and thus he contacted a group called the Phoenix Society uh, a group supporting people with severe facial disfigurements just to make sure that he got his portrayal right and uh, and respectful he also though uh, he was also talking about th- just the sheer challenge of being able to put this character on screen under so much makeup work now the makeup was the job of tony gardner and larry hamlin put together and it was a a sizable challenge there's no two ways about that um just to give you some degree of time scale by the time i mean neeson was ultimately cast in the film of course but his time in the makeup chair as the film progressed it would take five hours to put all the dark man makeup on and he would uh, neeson would be working up to 18 hours under layers and layers of this stuff he would say again in interviews that the bit he's Struggled with wasn't so much the makeup it was the false teeth that he was forced to wear that made some of the speech that he was having to do a lot more difficult in terms of the rest of the casting of the movie where how's this for a case of how Hollywood could have been very different the uh, lead, uh, the, the female lead role in the movie is the character of Julie Hastings who's in a relationship with Peyton Westlake is ultimately taken by Frances McDormand in the film, now McDormand and Sam Raimi were friends at the time they're friends now and at this stage in her career McDormand who's now of course won a couple of Oscars well she'd been nominated at this stage for her work in the film Mississippi Burning. She was nominated for Best Actress in 1989, and uh, she would she'd win her first Oscar in 1997 for Fargo, of course. And McDormand it would be who ultimately landed the role of Julie Hastings, but not before it was uh, first on on the docket of Julia Roberts. Now Julia Roberts at this stage was not movie star Julia Roberts, but she was uh, she was offered the chance to play Julie Hastings and would have apparently taken the part had it not been that she was cast around the same time in a small film that would go on to be called pretty woman um just imagine if she'd taken the other path there pretty woman of course would go on to be a gigantic hit other people who were linked with the role of julie hastings well demi moore was in the running at one stage bridget fonda apparently had a meeting or was tested for the role But Francis McDormand and Ramey were friends, and he asked her ultimately to join the film. Now, the story goes that during the production of the movie, they really didn't get on that well at all, that it was a a pretty combative shoot, Uh, even though I don't think the full story of it's come out. It sounds like they disagreed very, very often throughout the filming of the movie, and Rami's given an interview where he said, we learnt a lot about each other during the filming of that. Now, crucially, just so this doesn't turn into a gossipy, kind of clickbaity kind of podcast thing, The two remained friends, so it was clearly very much a professional disagreement on the set of the movie, um, but they found it tougher to work together than I think they were expecting to. Also nearly in the cast, as it happened, was Kathy Bates. She uh, She would go on to do Misery around the same time, but she was set to take on the role in the film... Of one of the doctors who's treating Westlake's burns, she, had, she her Oscar would follow, um, the, the, you know, j- just months, a year or so after Darkman. Um, but in the end, Jenny, she, Kathy Bates dropped out fairly late in the day, and Jenny Agatha actually would step in. Also in the film, uh, John Landis has a cameo in the midst of it as well, and apparently Landis was fairly pivotal to Agatha a- coming in and just taking on that small role in the film. Now, McDormand and Neeson, uh they certainly worked better together. That they both had theatre backgrounds and they were aware that their characters had romantic scenes in the movie um, but the pair went on uh, re- there there were was rehearsal time built into the schedule for Darkman I think that's crucial and the th- the pair had three, rom- three key romantic scenes that they went off basically and reworked and rewrote themselves and managed to find the, the heart of the relationship of the two characters to put on screen and take it a little bit beyond what was in the screenplay that said Neeson on set was reportedly quite quiet that he would uh, he would reportedly retreat into his character quite a lot on set he wouldn't do press work uh, while the film was shooting he'd spend a lot of time practicing in his trailer just to get the character right this was a big career jump for him and it's easy to lose context of that I guess but he hadn't led a big studio film at this stage so this was a really significant step up for him one of the lovely things apparently that Sam Raimi did during the production of the film was uh, he turned up in a shirt and tie pretty much every day to do his directing out of request uh, out of respect for his cast and crew I thought that was a really lovely touch the film was the, the actual production well it was primarily took place in LA there's a bit of work in Canada and filming began on the 19th of April 1989 it would run through to August of 1989, um, there was quite a heavy practical element to it. Neeson didn't do all of his own stunts; he did a few of them. But again, Raimi was able to hire a stunt team for uh, a full professional stunt team for the first time in his career, and he was determined to get his money worth for it. Neeson also said uh, around the time of the film's release that he'd committed to a sequel as part of his deal when he signed up to the movie. And that was a little bit universal working ahead of time. That by the end of that, uh, by the end of the 90s. It seemed pretty much to rigour though. if you signed up for a franchise movie, you were signing up for at least three of them, but here we were, Neeson would have signed that contract uh, towards the end of the 80s, and the deal would have been in place for him to return as Darkman. Of course he didn't, but then there were several years before the sequels came along, I'm going to come to them very, very, very shortly. The post-production of Darkman proved a monumental challenge, though, that Raimi had had a, a slightly tricky shoot on the film. I think that much was clear. But also he was new to the studio environment. And again, without naming names, it's a fairly commonly known story that he was assigned a film editor by Universal uh, to work on the picture and to put together the cut. And Ramey had provided a lot of storyboard work for the film. And the editor that he was working with wasn't following the storyboards. And Raimi wasn't happy with the cut of the film that was being put together and ultimately as the story goes the editor in question had a, a, a nervous break. it's a horrible story and he departed the movie and he's not the final credited editor on the film film editing is in fact credited to bud s smith and david Stiven on this one but the post-production problems were going to continue when it actually came to test screenings and again Raimi was in a whole new environment here he, he evil dead films the, the luxury of test screens just wasn't there but this was a studio movie universal put on a first test screening of the film and it sounded pretty disastrous that the the film's downbeat finale uh, played very very badly with the test audiences there was lots of laughing where they shouldn't have been laughing and apparently some of the studio some of the cards that came back to the studio were declaring people had people declaring it was one of the worst films they'd ever seen it was terrible and at at that particular moment in time it really looked like dark man was in some degree of trouble now further test screenings were organized And more and more of the film was coming together and apparently one of the pivotal moments was Danny Elfman's score being added to the film. Now we're into 1990 now and and Elfman, of course, written the Batman score for Tim Burton in 1989. His score was credited with helping lift Darkman and really helping that final cut come together. And the test screenings gradually improved. It was still a relatively small film on the Universal docket, though, and so it couldn't lash out the kind of money that Warner Brothers had spent promoting Batman the year before, or even that Disney was spending promoting Dick Tracy, covered in a previous podcast, uh, in the summer of nineteen ninety. It had a late summer uh, release, earmarked for Darkman, and whilst we now think August ni- an August release isn't uh, a film necessarily being dumped into the into the back end of the release. Schedule. Given that so many films have come out in August and hit big, back in 1990, that was very much the case. That it wasn't where a film with any degree of commercial expectation was really positioned. Nonetheless, Universal did some very smart early marketing uh, based around who is Darkman. That was uh, and that was running months ahead of the film's release. Again, unusual for such a modestly costed production. But the marketing of Darkman really proved to be something of a triumph, and it did raise the awareness. Of the film and so by the time the movie landed in cinemas on october the 24th 1990 um first of all the reviews were quite good i, I think it's worth noting that that uh, the whilst the critical reception wasn't necessarily saying uh, go, go and have lots of oscars the the response to it was really quite positive and also the, the, it wasn't commonplace to have a superhero comic book any kind of hero movie around at that time even though dick tracy had come out batman had come out they were ex- Exceptions and to give you an idea of what Darkman was up against here are the films that were in the top 10 on the day It was released in America um, the, that the weekend it was released, so Darkman actually topped the box office with eight million dollars—a real result for Universal. That eight million, a huge amount of money for a film like this, particularly at that time. Second place was Ghost. Third was Arachnophobia. Disney re-released The Jungle Book. Uh, that got fourth Flatliners at fifth. Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford at sixth. The Freshman at seven. Mo Better Blues and Spightly at eight. Ducktales the movie, underrated little film that. Treasure of the Lost Lamp. That's at nine. My Blue Heaven. If you want some nerdy trivia, the Steve Martin Rick Moranis film My Blue Heaven. He's based roughly around the same story as Goodfellas. That was at 10. So, Darkman really was standing out a little bit from those films. And its return, ultimately, would be a, a worldwide... It, it did $33 million in the US. A real surprise hit. And worldwide, it would add another $15 million. $48 million was ultimately banked. And that was a real, a, a really smart return for the film. And Raimi had a little bit of a hit on his hands. And also, that started to pave the way towards him getting the Spider-Man directing gig that would follow just over a decade later. He would follow Darkman up with Army of Darkness, The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan for Love of the Game and the Gift, before he got to Spider-Man. But the building blocks were clearly there in Darkman. There were sequels, uh, I, I should note that, uh, but they were Universal's first live action director video sequels. I mean, this predated the DVD era as well. Unusually as well, Darkman 2, The Return of Durant, and Darkman 3, Darkman... Dark, die, dark man, die! Crikey, I'm not cutting that. Out. I'll leave my stumble in. Um, they were actually shot at the same time, but released in the wrong order. That dark, the, the, the film that became Darkman Three. 3- was supposed to be Darkman 2 and the film that was supposed to be Darkman 2 became Darkman 3 and if you watch the two films they're a little bit of a muddle the only person who returned for them was Larry Drake the rest of the cast had moved on Uh, Ramey had moved on there were other things happening but I would say this if you've not dug out Darkman and had a look at it I really think it's a a really smart a really good uh, early 90s superhero film and it's got a much darker edge we look now at superhero films having an R rating to them Ramey not for the first time got Got to this ground before lots of other people I do. it does leave me wondering what Raimi would have made of the Shadow and he did try and resurrect the, a, a Shadow project in the 2000s that came to nothing but the fact that the Shadow didn't happen and the, the fact that his Batman film didn't happen ultimately led to Darkman, I don't think that's a bad thing now, which brings us to the end of the latest episode of Film Stories thank you as always for listening you can find me on Twitter at Simon Brew you can find the entire Film Stories project on uh, on Twitter at Film Stories Pod you can come and see me live I've got two shows coming up in Birmingham at the Midlands Arts Centre in January and February uh, where it's going to be 90 minutes of movie geekdom and me nattering and special guests so please join me for that more details at the Film Stories website you can find at www.filmstories.co.uk we have a whole host of video exclusive film stories that we're running now uh, you can find those at youtube.com slash film stories we're on facebook facebook.com slash film stories online and over the coming weeks too I'm about to start work on issue 3 of film stories junior magazine but I've waffled on so long on this particular podcast I want to bring it to an end. so if you want to find details on that do take a look at filmstories.co.uk thank you as always for your support thank you for listening thank you for letting me bore you to death and I will be back with you soon with a whole other bunch of film stories you will take care. Bye-bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long.